Just a quick note before we begin. Due to social distancing guidelines for COVID-19, the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K has been rescheduled for August 22nd. The race will be held in Freehold, New Jersey. If you're in the area or plan on visiting, come by and say hi. This event was organized by Marines, and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. Visit MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5K.org for more details. I've included a link in the episode description and will share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's finish up the Barbary War. Welcome to Episode 40 of History of the Marine Corps, the end of the First Barbary War. Our last episode continued to cover the confrontation between Yusuf's army and the defenders of Dern. Eaton and O'Bannon were doing a great job at defending the captured fort. The plan was to move further inland and capture Benghazi and ultimately Tripoli. However, those plans changed after Eaton received news that Tobias Lear sought a peace settlement. In this episode, we'll put a bow on the Tripolitan War and take a look at how the key players handled life after the war. This episode also discusses how the American public and some members of Congress felt about Lear's decision for peace. We'll finish up with some stats and a quick look at how the world started to see United States Marines after this battle. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Tobias Lear's decision to ask for peace, instead of moving forward with the original plan of dethroning Yusuf, had a significant impact on the men who were fighting for this cause. This decision was unacceptable for Ian and O'Bannon. They marched over 500 men across northern Africa to reach Dern. Once they arrived, they managed to capture the city in two and a half hours. Many men died during this mission including Americans. Now, without consulting or even notifying Eaton, Tobias Lear established a peace deal with Yusuf. This decision impacted Eaton, but Yusuf was breathing a sigh of relief. With Dern falling in a couple of hours, a military victory in Tripoli was within reach. The Tripolitan leader knew he wasn't a match, and Lear's decision allowed Yusuf to save face and keep his power. When the Bashaw initially declared war on the United States, he ordered his men to cut down the flagpole in front of the U.S. consulate in Tripoli. However, after Yusuf received the peace deal, a carpenter was sent to build a new flagpole. And when the United States colors flew over the consulate for the first time in four years, Yusuf ordered a 21-gun salute. The U.S. warships, Constitution, Constellation, Essex and Vixen all sailed into the Tripoli Harbor, passing the burnt remains of the Philadelphia. After 18 months of being held captive, most of the 307 prisoners were going home. 11 of them went missing, and 6 died during their confinement. There were 5 sailors who agreed to convert to Islam. Yusuf called for these 5 men and allowed them to renounce their conversion and return home. 
Only one decided to convert and stay in Tripoli. The Bashaw was angry at the other four and summoned his guards to march them away. Marine Private Ray stated, quote, We had a glimpse of them as they passed our prison and could see the horror and despair depicted in their faces. Unquote. The four sailors were never heard from again, and Tobias Lear chose not to ask questions about their disappearance. It seems like Lear was putting all his eggs in the treaty basket, and he didn't want anything to impact Yusuf's acceptance. The language in the treaty was written in a way to save Yusuf humiliation. The $60,000 payment was described as a ransom for the Philadelphia prisoners. This wording permitted Yusuf to claim that he had obtained compensation from the United States, which suggested a win for the Tripolitan leader. The most significant victory for Yusuf was the promise by the United States to leave Dern. Without much of an option, Eaton, the Marines, and mercenaries left Dern. The Greek cannoneers and Christian mercenaries split paths from the Americans and they headed east. Eaton convinced Commodore Rogers to provide Hamet a stipend of $200 a month. Now a general without an army, albeit self-appointed, Eaton jumped on the American supply ship Franklin and headed home. He spent the duration of the trip in his cabin, writing a letter to Secretary of the Navy Robert Smith. Eaton was still furious about Lear's decision, and his message denounced not only the peace treaty, but also Lear himself. As Eaton continued to write, you can feel the anger increasing. I won't be able to articulate the letter properly, so I'll post a copy on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you want to take a look. But in the letter, he vents about sending a messenger of peace to Yusuf while their ally is sacrificed for a policy. He even takes shots at Commodore Barron, who initially verbally supported the mission. Eaton refers to Barron as the Machiavellian commissioner and claims that he had surrendered his mind through bodily weakness. He concludes his letter with a snarky P.S. Enlisted United States warships ready to attack Tripoli. He ends with, quote, Preble attacked Tripoli successfully with less than one-third this force and with no collateral circumstances in his favor, unquote. Eaton made his point, but despite his disapproval of negotiating peace, his intentions were not to overturn the treaty. He understood that this decision was already made. Plus, Hamet was discouraged, and the mercenaries went their separate ways. When Eaton first put his quill to paper, he intended to merely declare his disapproval of Lear's decision. Eaton's motive changed as he continued to write. His goal was to repay Hamet for his hard work during the expedition, as well as convincing the government to criticize Lear's decision. He hoped this letter would reach President Jefferson, who supported the journey when it first kicked off. Now it's true that Jefferson initially approved of Eaton's quest, but as time passed, Jefferson would change his mind. On March 4, 1805, he gave his inaugural address, which discussed Eaton's plan. The president now believed that moving forward with the coup would compromise the moral duties of the United States. This is a debate that is still going on today. Not specifically about the Barbary Wars, but should the United States be involved with the political decisions of other countries? As with most things in life, I don't think the answer is black or white. 
Arguments then were remarkably similar to arguments today, and I understand both sides. On the one hand, the governments of the Barbary states were obviously corrupt. Europe fought extortion from these states for hundreds of years. And as soon as the United States became an independent nation, we became a target as well. If the United States moved forward with the plan of dethroning Yusuf, would Hamet have kept his promise and honored America as an ally? Would Libya be our ally today? But on the other hand, should the United States interfere with the citizens' decision to establish their own country? During the American Revolution, colonists stood up against Great Britain and fought for a country in which they believed. We created a nation that was by the people and for the people. And to Jefferson's point, is it moral to take away that right from other nations? Luckily, those decisions are way above my pay grade. Whatever your stance is, at the time, Jefferson did not think this was the right decision for the United States. Obviously, Eaton disagreed with this. Dethroning Yusuf didn't interfere with the moral duties of the U.S. Eaton believed that the decision to abandon an ally, go back on their word as a country, pay the enemy $60,000, and establishing a peace deal was the immoral act. As Eaton traveled to the United States, Commodore Rogers and his squadron stayed in the Mediterranean. It was July 4th, 1805, and the fleet in the Mediterranean celebrated the anniversary of the nation's independence. Warships were decorated with flags, and at noon, they all fired a 16-gun salute. Rogers held a huge feast at night, but despite the celebration, the new Commodore was thinking about the peace settlement with Tripoli. Rogers wasn't as skeptical as Lear and his predecessor, and he felt that the United States could have succeeded against Tripoli. Commodore Rogers was in charge of the largest squadron the United States has ever sent into international waters, and he wanted to put the fleet to use. During the same time, the other Barbary states were starting to hear about the peace settlement and that sweet $60,000 payment. Hamuda, the Bay of Tunis, made a public declaration about declaring war against the United States. He based his justification of war on a previous confrontation, where the United States seized his ships back in April. He demanded the return of his ships and threatened to send his own navy to attack if the United States did not comply. I'm not sure what Hamuda was thinking with this threat. The United States squadron was clearly superior to the Tunisian fleet, and they would have been demolished if they attacked the Americans. Rogers knew this, and he called Hamuda's bluff. Commodore Rogers sailed his 16 warships towards Tunis and anchored near the city. This was the largest fleet ever to assemble on the Barbary coast. As Hamuda looked out his palace window on August 1st, he had a clear view of the squadron, displaying their hundreds of cannons pointing towards the city. Rogers sent a letter to Hamuda asking for a meeting, but the bay denied his request. Rogers was there to answer Hamuda's threat of war. If he really wanted a fight, the Commodore was ready to give it to him. Rogers offered an ultimatum and gave the Bay 36 hours to make up his mind. It seemed like Hamuda was having second thoughts on his threat. Instead of attacking the fleet, he complained 
about the United States sending their entire fleet to the harbor. Rogers used this opportunity to take a jab at Hamuda's complaint. It was hardly the entire U.S. fleet, and he said that another frigate, a brig, eight more gunboats, and two bomb catches were on their way to join the already large squadron. Hamuda's original threat of war now turned into backpedaling. The Bay requested that the argument between Rogers and Tunis be sent to Washington, D.C. for negotiation. Rogers agreed to this deal, but with a caveat. He would only allow talks to take place in D.C. if Hamuda gave a formal declaration of peace until negotiations were complete. But the leader of Tunis denied this request. With the 36-hour deadline now exceeding six days, he demanded a response from Hamuda. The Bay continued to refuse Rogers' conditions of a temporary peace deal, so the Commodore sent a few of his ships outside of the harbor to establish a blockade. The decision to form a blockade instead of attacking the city was most likely Lear's decision. Lear was on the flagship, and he wanted a treaty with Tunis and influenced Rogers from attacking. The barrier did work, and supplies into the harbor were cut off, This move changed Hamuda's mind about negotiating, and he agreed to Rogers' terms. A Tunisian ambassador was sent to the United States via the Congress, and the U.S. squadron sailed back to Malta. With the tension in Tunis de-escalating, American warships started to make their way back to the United States. Barron sailed on the President. Captain Bainbridge, after a court-martial regarding his actions on the Philadelphia, was found innocent and he headed back as well. Tobias Lear visited Europe, picked up some gifts for the Barbary leader, and headed back to Algiers. Jefferson called back the U.S. warships one by one. He focused on minimizing the number of ships and the number of officers in the Navy, despite new tensions with Great Britain, something that we will discuss as we get into the next war. Rogers stayed in the Mediterranean and continued to show American presence. This had a positive impact on trade in the area. Commerce tripled with some countries, and now that the Barbary Coast leaders were put in their place, the risk of piracy lowered, which resulted in insurance rates dropping. Jefferson was concerned with American warships getting involved with the Napoleonic Wars and ordered Rogers home on May 26, 1806. Tensions in the Barbary Coast continued as time went on. The day of Algiers was assassinated, and fighting started between Tunis and Algiers. A couple of American ships were captured in the process, and Tobias Lear tried to remind the new leader about the peace treaty, but the day refused to listen and honor the peace treaty. After a small battle between an American ship and an Algerian ship, the day of Algiers threatened to imprison Lear if the United States did not pay $16,000 in reparations. The U.S. ended up paying. I can only speculate what was going through Lear's head at the time. He chose peace, and now he is seeing the repercussions of striking a deal with pirates with a history of going back on their word. I think Lear regretted his decision, and we'll touch on that in a few minutes. But what's clear is that some leaders in the states adamantly disagreed with his decision. When word of the treaty reached the United States, Secretary of the Navy Smith wrote the president and said, quote, I must say 
I had expected a treaty of a different character, and informed as I am now, I wish that such a peace had not been made. Unquote. When Jefferson dispatched the treaty to the Senate, there was outrage. The Senate and the press condemned the agreement, and the public accused the U.S. of selling out to Tripoli. Great questions were raised during the outcry. Why was a ransom paid when the full power of the U.S. squadron had not been used first? Why was the expedition suddenly canceled, despite previous approval from senior political leaders? Senator Thomas Pickering condemned Lear, and he described the treaty as nothing but the vilest treachery on the vilest principles. The peace treaty with Tripoli would go down in U.S. history as one of the most unpopular treaties ever. A little over four months after the agreement was sent to the Senate, it was begrudgingly approved. Tobias Lear's future fell apart. He wanted to make a name for himself as a diplomat, but instead, he was hated by the American public. This was primarily due to Eaton. Upon his return, Eaton was celebrated. Jefferson gave him a dinner at the White House, and Senator Stephen Bradley introduced a resolution that would reward Eaton, O'Bannon, and the Marines. He proposed setting aside some land and giving Eaton and O'Bannon 1,000 acres each, and each of the Marines 320 acres. The combined territory would be known as Dern. But Eaton had another goal, and he wasn't concerned with property or praise. He despised Lear's decision and decided to launch a campaign against him. He went to Congress and requested they impeach the consul for his decision. It didn't take a lot of convincing, and many senators agreed that Lear's decision was disgraceful to the nation. Eaton made this campaign his mission, and he went from tavern to tavern convincing political leaders to side with his conclusion. He had tremendous support in the beginning, but as time progressed, his speeches were fueled more and more by alcohol. Some of Eaton's supporters were annoyed with his rants and started to turn against the self-proclaimed general. Congress never impeached Lear, and he would go on to serve as the consul general to the North African coast until 1812. He returned to the United States and was appointed as a secretary to the War Department. Although he continued to serve his country, he was not satisfied with his life. On October 11, 1816, Tobias Lear took his life with a pistol shot. He didn't leave a note, so we can only guess on why. Yusuf would remain the ruler of Tripoli until 1832. He stepped away from his role and was replaced by his son. Yusuf passed away in 1838. As we mentioned earlier in the episode, Hamet received a $200 per month payment and the United States was able to reunite him with his wife and four children. Hamet and his family spent the rest of their life in exile in Egypt, dying in 1811. Eaton's campaign to discredit Lear slowed and his motivation moved towards collecting reimbursement for the money he spent on the expedition he racked up a bill of $39,108, most of which was paid with his own money. Jefferson promised $40,000 for this expedition, but after crunching numbers, he only received $12,636.60. William Eaton returned to the United States as a national hero, but as time went on, 
his constant rant started to make enemies. Eaton would move out of the spotlight and head back to his hometown of Brimfield, Massachusetts. His drinking would continue to increase. He would eventually suffer from gout and rheumatism, and his health quickly deteriorated. Eaton and Hamet would continue to ride each other for years, and he would continue to complain about the expedition until his death. On June 1st, 1811, the same year as Hamet, Eaton would die at the age of 47. He was buried with military honors, but only a few newspapers would record his death. William Eaton is honored to this day, and is memorialized in Boston by a street called Dern. It's a small street, only about 350 feet long, and many people who walk it most likely aren't aware of its origin. During World War II, British and German forces would both use Eaton's detailed information about his march during the Western Desert Campaign. William Bainbridge would redeem himself after the debacle with the George Washington and the Philadelphia. We'll get into the battle in a future episode, but while Bainbridge was commanding the Constitution, both legs were wounded in action against the British ship Java. Despite his injuries, Bainbridge would continue to command the crew of the Constitution, which would eventually result in victory. Thomas Jefferson would retire to his home. He suffered from a severe fever on July 3, 1826, and understood that his death was near. He was determined to live one more day to see the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. On July 4th, with his family gathered around, he asked the doctor, Is it the 4th yet? Those were among Jefferson's last words. Five hours after Jefferson's death, John Adams passed away as well in Massachusetts. Both Jefferson and Adams were great friends. Adams wasn't aware of Jefferson's death, and his final words were, Jefferson still lives. These two friends dedicated their lives to the success of the United States. They believed in the nation and fought for it since the beginning. They helped guide the colonies into a country, and a country that was respected globally. It seems fitting that they both passed hours from each other on the 50th anniversary of the country's independence. As for the Marines, this expedition helped solidify their place in United States history. The Virginia General Assembly honored Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon with a replica of the Mameluke sword held by Hamet. There was an inscription on the hilt that read, Presented by the state of Virginia to her gallant son, Presley N. O'Bannon. They embarrassingly misspelled his first name as Presley, P-R-E-S-T-L-Y. O'Bannon went back to the Argus and continued to serve until March 1807. He returned to his wife in Virginia and moved to Kentucky, where his brother owned a distillery. He and his wife had a son, who they named Eaton. O'Bannon would later be elected to both houses of the Kentucky legislature, and he would pass away on September 12, 1850, at the age of 74. Similar to the inscription on the Mameluke sword, O'Bannon's rank would be inscribed incorrectly on his tombstone. Marines remember Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon as the Marine who was awarded the Mameluke sword. However, he has another first. O'Bannon was the first American to plant the United States flag on foreign soil. Way back in episode 11, the Marines go to the Bahamas, 
another Marine, John Trevitt, raised the Continental colors over Fort Nassau. This means that Marines were the first to raise American colors on foreign soil, first representing the colonies, and then representing the United States. This honor is something I wasn't aware of before starting the podcast. The flag O'Bannon hoisted over Dern was displayed as late as 1820 in Brimfield, Massachusetts, but it has since disappeared. In 1917, the U.S. Navy recognized O'Bannon by naming a destroyer after him, and another in 1942. She would sink a Japanese battleship off Guadalcanal and earn 16 battle stars during World War II. During the First Barbary War, two Marines lost their life. The significance of this number changes depending on how you look at it. Two isn't a lot, but considering there were only eight Marines in this expedition, that's 25%. There is no doubt this war changed the legacy of the United States Navy and United States Marines. The U.S. Navy dominated against Barbary pirates, and they were able to do more in a few years than Europe had accomplished in hundreds. It was the first time an American flag was hoisted outside of the Western Hemisphere. From a military perspective, it displayed the effectiveness of naval gunfire while working with Marines on the ground. With the help of the Navy, Presley O'Bannon and his seven Marines were able to stop hundreds of men trying to take the fort. If you've been listening since the beginning, you understand how successful Marines are during battle. There isn't a shortage of heroic tales. Military leaders, foreign and domestic, have praised Marines for their tenacity. The Marines will continue to prove their worth in the War of 1812. The actions and reputation by Marines were so cherished that when President Andrew Jackson tried to abolish the Marine Corps as a separate service in 1829, Congress flat out killed the proposal. Marines have had success in the past, But this war is perhaps considered the most significant event in Marine Corps history. It's memorialized in the Marines' hymn and through the Mameluke sword carried by Marine officers to this day. Thanks for listening. I'm debating on what topic to get into next. We're either going to jump right into the War of 1812 or spend an episode talking about the history of dueling in the Marine Corps. If you have a preference, feel free to shoot us an email. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.